Free search for what? Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, I will interview recognized thought leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. We will talk about the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods they use to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? In this episode, I'm very pleased to speak with Mark Elliott. Mark completed a PhD thesis in collaboration from the University of Melbourne in 2007. He then founded a company called CollabForge. CollabForge is a firm based in Melbourne, which specializes in driving collaboration and innovation, both within and across organizations, through strategy and technology. Mark has facilitated hundreds of workshops, primarily with government agencies, and recently wrote a book titled Collaboration Design. This book summarizes the method he and his team developed over many years to teach people how to collaborate. Mark, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Maybe just to start, normal people like myself often define collaboration as simply working together. Right. Now, it's, this is a very simplified view. So can you start by telling me how you see collaboration? Any number of people will define collaboration differently. And just to begin with, I think that that is completely fine and actually quite important because I guess a, a starting mm -hmm. point from my position is that collaboration is in our DNA. It's something that every human in theory has the capability to do in any culture, in any situation or setting. It's something that arises naturally as part of human behavior. Having said that, though, and then that's what gives rise to all of our many different interpretations of what collaboration is, what it's for, how to do it, and thus how we define it. I guess in my in my own research and uh, and efforts to understand it, I'm very much focused in on. I don't know the the, the heart of collaboration in that space of uh, say co-creation. Right. For me, ultimately, my the origins, how I got exposed to collaboration was as an as an artist, as a musician, playing with other musician um, musicians and developing artworks. And so, when I was initially exploring collaboration as a as a uh, essentially a creative strategy, I was kind of struck by reading these you know dictionary definitions of working together towards a shared goal, and I thought, well, that that I guess that's right, but it seems to go a lot deeper for me. What mm -hmm. is What is that in that depth? And 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 so in in the more of that space of co-creation, for me, collaboration is where those working together constructively surface and discover tensions that can be resolved into shared value. And tensions can be that's a, can be applied very broadly. That can be, oh, we just don't have the same understanding, or in fact, we don't know each other. That could be a tension. Mm -hmm. And once you build a relationship, that's shared value. But often in you know in the context of research and what we're talking about, it it can be considerably more substantive, developing new solutions, new approaches, new ways of working. So, but on the outset, it starts out as as a tension, something between participants or or people that is unknown, uncomfortable, potentially even a, a disagreement. And, I, and I'll go one more step further. So in that process of resolving those shared tensions, what I've found over the years is what's required is that the participants ultimately have some form of ability to add, edit, or delete content from like a, a shared pool. Mm -hmm. 
And that can be obviously like in a document or on a whiteboard, but probably more commonly, more practically, it's in our minds. It's our ideas and our thoughts. So if I share an idea with you, are you open-minded enough to be able to hear what I'm saying and allow your ideas and thoughts to change as a result? Mm -hmm. So that process of kind of editing a shared pool of content enables the ability to resolve tensions into shared value. In your book, you make the point that in history, the word collaboration originated maybe in the early 19th century, and in particular in the science and research field, when people co-authored papers or scientific articles. Yes. Why mm -hmm. is collaboration so deeply in research and so valuable for research and science? It's quite likely has a lot to do with the need for understanding attribution. So in contexts where the identity of a originator of an idea, a method, you know, a research breakthrough mm -hmm. is really central to somebody's career, let alone then, you know, the copyrights and patents mm -hmm. and all those sorts of things that, that have flown on from that, you know, being able to identify an individual is really important. And increasingly, you know, as, you know, off the back of the, the development of printing presses and the like, it became easier and easier to collaborate, uh, co-author papers and work together at a, at a really quite a substantive level. And so being able to give somebody attribution, mm -hmm. I, I believe, is probably what kind of drove a lot of that thinking and the word to start to emerge and it being applied to, yeah, co-authoring scientific papers or or even playwrights, you know, co-authoring the, the, the same play. But you don't always need collaboration, right? So but you, you, you started by talking about music. So there are big ensembles, yeah. but there are also uh, much smaller groups. I, yes. I saw a study from Nature Index that showed that in philosophy, the proportion of yeah. papers that have one author is over 90%, whereas in physics, right. less than 15% of papers have one paper. So, so you know, how, yes. what is the difference between these fields or the different types of music? I mean, just different cultures of working and being mm -hmm. um, tend to attract different levels and different types of collaboration. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, the reverse is true. Different types of problem solving lend themselves to different types of collaboration, better or worse. I mean, the, this is always painfully demonstrated to me when I'm, you know, uh, come home from work and am excited about some new collaboration method that I've had a breakthrough in, you know, working with my clients and I, you know, I might try to apply it at home and, you know, it fails dismally. Right. Um, different settings really require different methods and, and different understandings of collaboration. So it's, Yeah, that's been one of my biggest lessons over the years. So music, the approach to, to say collaboration that you might use in music would be vastly different in my mm. experience than what you might use in scientific collaboration or, or even collaboration within a business. And even within music, the type of collaboration that you might use in a rock band would be very mm -hmm. different than, say, in you know, a symphonic, symphonic orchestra, for example. Mm -hmm. that, that's interesting because I think often for research projects at the time of application and yep. application for funding, it is expected that people will say, here are my collaborators, here uh, we will collaborate. We don't know how we're yeah. going to do it yet, but we will collaborate. <laughs> Declaring that we will collaborate, what, it, what you're saying is that that can be an issue. Yes, it needs to be absolutely. worked out before that. To, to a degree. I mean, 
I mean, I would like to say, yes, it should be worked out before that, but there are, you know, in the, the, the world of practicalities, it's, it's not always possible, frankly. And, and I've, I've been involved in at least witnessing, if not supporting a great many different types of collaborations and those in, in the industry research space. And, you know, there's just different, different drivers that get people on board and focused in different ways at different times. And a big challenge for, um, on the you know in the in the research collaboration spaces when you're collaborating more with the, on the research side of things it's you know kind of a clash of different types of thinking and methods say the the slow thinking versus fast thinking mm-hmm. you know and the, on the research side you know typically results are you know they they can be thought of as incremental long term building on the shoulders of giants mm-hmm. those sorts of things mm-hmm. whereas in the in the industry side of things you're trying to be the giant, you haven't got enough time and you've never got enough money and you need results immediately. Otherwise you could sink really. Yeah. And so there's, there's often quite a clash of cultures there. And I, one thing that I often see is that, you know, the uh, researchers going to have the, the best of intent in wanting to engage their collaborators to really sort things out beforehand, taking this, you know, kind of a slower methodological approach and really think things through. Whereas, you know, for example, if you're working with industry partners, they just might not be able to make time for that. Their their mindsets and their working environments and, you know, their measurements for success just might not be aligned. Uh, and But the, the challenge that often happens, you know, one of the classic challenges is that, uh, okay, we're successful. We've got our funding now. Now let's figure out what this collaboration means. And, oh, wait, we're already late on delivering on our first thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you start to kind of just get increasingly behind the ball on in terms of figuring out how you're going to do it together. <laughs> so in, in that scenario, and often research teams have different types of people invo- involved, master students, PhD students, yeah. early career, mid-career researchers, or more senior uh, scientists. Does it matter who collaborates? Yeah. Yes, yeah, I think that it does, and 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 it matters how people collaborate. But in, you know, a lot of the a lot of it is just about recognizing you know who is collaborating, when, and how, and and why. Mm-hmm. We have have a bit of a framework that kind of, if you imagine like a, a cross section of a large collaborative effort. In the, in the core, you will have those that are really substantively doing the the co creation. Which involves a lot of heavy lifting. It a lot of involves a lot of regular, routine conversations, working sessions, and you know, one step out of that, you, you know, you have those who are interacting more on what we would call a cooperative type of uh, level. So it's more of a transactional exchange. And so, you know, one version of that dynamic is you can imagine that in the core they develop a brief that needs to be fulfilled by somebody in a more transactional way. And they can kind of pass that out into their cooperators. And the cooperator just reads the instructions, provides the results back into the into mm-hmm. the core, who then kind of process it or integrate it in, you know, that sort of an approach. And that that's kind of readily understood in terms of like, okay, who's going to be doing a lot of the mm-hmm. work and needs to be in that core. But what's it, what's often overlooked is that those in more senior roles, decision makers, um, whether those are managers, executives, senior researchers, what have you, they often operate in that more cooperative mode. Mm -hmm. They're like, you go and do all that hard work and let me know if you run into trouble. Mm -hmm. If so, give me the information that I need and I will 
provide you with a solution or a yes, no answer or unblock you or something like that. So it's interesting that the leadership in a sense often is not in a genuinely collaborative space. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with our structures of our cultures and working environments in terms of hierarchies and the like, but also time demands, but it Mm -hmm. kind of trains our minds and modes of working. And, you know, by and large, that can be fine if that if that's recognized for what it is. But it also can throw throw troubles into the mix when you've got those who really, like in a research context, where those who really hold the the deeper knowledge, expertise, or understandings, expecting another team to really do that co creation well without their actual collaborative participation, and they're just trying to kind of interact on a more transactional. I'll check your work type of a mode. So that that can that can definitely create issues, especially actually when the results of what you're looking for, the more unknown they are, as in the more kind of breakthrough innovation you're really looking for, then you're constantly having to make course corrections and zigzagging all over the place. And when you when that that kind of leadership or senior perspective is not regularly in the mix, then you can get, you know, drift in the wrong direction or unexpected directions, or you can, you know, success might not be understood well enough for that core team. So those are definitely some issues that we we see plenty of. So I think what you're describing, I often see that situation in a cooperative research centers from the Australian Research Council, which I think you've you've worked with before. That's right. So what do you tell people to look for before then embark on a CRCP project, for example? Even before getting into too much depth around, you know, what is collaboration going to look like for this for this project and, and the like, and who should be participating in what way, you know, we are, we're often really focused on notions around uh, value propositions. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, do should we even be collaborating mm-hmm. as in like does, does this problem or situation really lend itself to those um, more co-creation type of interactions or is it is it actually just straight up cooperation command and control you know where there is you know a, a fairly clear destination or result that's required and it just needs to be kind of managed into existence you know there are plenty of of problems that can be solved perfectly well in that situation and uh, and when they can be i would almost always advise that they are because collaboration real collaboration really requires a lot more energy and interaction and commitment uh, time so in the first instance weighing up what is your challenge and you know how significantly is genuine collaboration, co-creation, co-design? How what is the need for that? So in the, in the first instance, so the value proposition for collaboration, mm-hmm. and then quickly following that, if you go well, yeah, no, it's definitely one of those situations where, for example, I just simply can't get it done myself. I mm-hmm. need somebody else's ideas, their expertise, their input, and it's going to be a mashup of these inputs that really gets the results. If that's that's the case, then great. Then moving forward, understanding the value propositions for those participating is really, really important. We've, we've got a, a really simple tool that's, that's it's in the, outlined in the book as well. We, we call it the double-sided value proposition. And in fact, it can be many-sided, but to keep it simple, the double-sided value proposition works like this. As in, you know, I go, well, I need your participation because 
I don't have the the background in this particular area of science that I have identified mm-hmm. as crucial for our solution. Simple. But what is your value proposition mm-hmm. for participation? Mm-hmm. Now, almost always as the instigator or the lead for a collaborative proposition, I will like project my value proposition onto you. Mm-hmm. And I will go, well, you need my science. Or, you know, you're going to get such great results out of combining your science with my science that it's self-evident why mm-hmm. you would want to participate because I've already identified why I want you to participate. <laughs> yes. But the, the interesting thing is that if you, and it's such a simple exercise, if you literally just write down your value proposition, literally write it mm-hmm. down for the other's participation, and then write down what you think their value proposition is, and don't limit yourself necessarily to one to one outcome or one result. Like you're just saying, well, what are all the reasons why they might want to participate with me? It is, I would say, 100% of the time, always different. They're two different value propositions. And so just that realization is so critical because without that realization, you'll be talking over other people. You'll be constructing all kinds of things in your mind, let alone in process and and design that aren't relevant to the other people participating. (laughs) And until you flush out those value propositions and confirm them and validate them, and even more ideally, hear from the horse's mouth, like you just tell me what are the things that you're interested in here, you can't really get to a genuine collaborative working space until the you know the participants involved really understand what's in it for each other. Why are they really there? Um, because it's quite likely, for example, that you know the other participants they don't really care as much about the result that you care about. You know, they just might want to get their name on the paper because they need to get you know the rankings up, or they're really interested to to hang out with and learn from somebody else who's working with you. It has nothing to do with the results whatsoever. And you might then not know that and create situations where they don't get those opportunities Mm. and then wonder why they've kind of drifted away, you know, after a few months because they're not getting their needs met. So what you're saying is before the project starts, align your expectations. It can be tricky to have those deeper conversations with people that you don't even know on the Mm. outset before there's even any money on the table or an opportunity on the table, really. But you don't have to necessarily take a a full, deep, collaborative approach at that time. If you use some more kind of design thinking type of tools of the type that we've got plenty of in the book, then you you can bring those to the table and say, I think this is why collaboration is really important, essential in this situation. And this is what I mean by collaboration. And I really need your involvement because of these reasons. But I think you might be interested in being involved for these other reasons. Have I got that right or wrong? Can Mm. you help me understand if you see a value proposition for your participation? Mm -hmm. Just starting a conversation in that way is usually, you know, light years ahead of how they're they're often started (laughs) in these situations. So this sort of conversations can happen between individuals and you're saying they should happen between individuals. How about different institutions? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, I'm of the belief that It's only individuals who can have conversations. Institutions actually can't talk to each other. (laughs) Yes. Um, Obviously, so that it's more representatives of of institutions. And and that's a really interesting sort of fuzzy space because I'm sure, you know, you've probably had that experience of having a great contact at some institution who's left. 
and right. then you're left with no connections that organization or you know the 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 other opportunity is they might leave and go to a different organization and take you with them and suddenly you have a new relationship with a different organization so absolutely it's you know and the the way to kind of overcome that is to extend that that double-sided value proposition one more click so mm-hmm. as in it's like what's in it for me what's in it for you as individuals and then what's in it for my organization, what's in it for your organization. And so that's another way to be able to draw in the value propositions for the organizations. And ultimately what that tends to do is then provides a platform or a premise for socializing the idea within an organization. Mm. So if that other person is going to take it away and take it up the chain or what have you, if they're speaking from the perspective of not what's in it for me, but what's in it for the organization, it has that same double-sided value, mm-hmm. uh, value proposition effect. So then some, you know, somebody who holds the purse strings or an executive can go, oh, if it's serving my business needs, then I can probably see how it's going to serve my needs as well. <laughs> Once the project has started, can you have targets for collaboration? And do you need someone to monitor whether the group is achieving these targets? Yes, I think definitely you want to have targets. And yes, you definitely need to monitor them. And and it can be good to sort of wear different hats or, you know, take different approaches to that monitoring, as in like, you know, one thing that we often talk a lot about is the the need and importance for facilitation in collaboration. Mm -hmm. And the reason for Mm -hmm. that, uh, there's a few reasons, but the main one is, is just it's really difficult to both participate and facilitate at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so a simple example might be like, you've got a, a meeting or a working session planned. You've got a goal to get X result by the end of that. Um, you have a particular time that you have to work to. It might be, say you've got 90 minutes and you realize that there's a couple of steps you're going to have to take as a group. You're going to have to understand the problem, for example. You're going to have to brainstorm some different solutions. You're going to have to zero in on one and then make a plan to post session to really kind of bring that solution home, for example. If you're deep in in the, the thick of trying to work through those issues, mm-hmm. you're not watching the clock. Mm. Time gets elastic. It starts, you know, mm. doing all kinds of weird things when, you're, when your brain's really having fun turning over ideas. And you just simply can't watch the time, the clock, in the same way. You can't also stay across the process. You have to get immersed. And so having somebody who's like, well... I'll take the facilitation mm-hmm. role here and just make sure we're on time or on task and we're switching you know, steps in our process when we need to so everybody else can benefit from that state of immersion. That's one example, but it, the same happens over longer scales. So, you know, over months, you know, you need somebody who's kind of watching time and watching that. That can be a collaborator. It doesn't have to be somebody with a dedicated traditional project management role. It's more just about having the recognition that that's consciously being looked after. Starting a project with people we've never worked with before, it's very exciting. And people want to work together. And there's a lot of excitement building up early on. But if the project takes three years, four years, you know, sometimes yeah. that excitement starts to fade away. So how do we keep that collaboration high? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> momentum. That is probably yeah. losing momentum and energy is probably one of the biggest sort of collaboration killers, as right. we call them. Part of that is how you set yourself up on the outset, but also how you kind of refresh things as you go. 
for me, at the at the heart of that matter, matter it it comes back to that initial point around value propositions. So if you've done if you've really done some good work on the outset and really zeroed in on the value propositions for mm-hmm. part- participation, and you know done a good job of kind of structuring your project or your collaboration around those value propositions, then that's an important starting point. But it is just a starting point because genuine collaboration. Uh, where there's a significant amount of co-creation involved, you will have you you necessarily have to be dealing with emergent outcomes. Mm-hmm. You don't know the outcome. That that's the whole point well, of multidisciplinary collaboration. Really, is in if you did, then you could do it all yourself, and you wouldn't be working with other people, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or you use command and control methods because you know what the solution is. You just need other people to do it for you. Yes. Um, so that is not the case here. So when that's the case, when you're requiring an emergent solution, then what's going to happen is that at each milestone, let alone at each substantive point of collaboration, you're going to get a result that may be more or less what you expected. Mm-hmm. and But always it's going to be to some degree not what you expected potentially so the more that that happens throughout the this you know a series of events of a longer project say one year in you might be looking at a very different project and a very different result than you did on the outset and so that what that means is your value propositions be, can become unaligned basically mm-hmm. and it's not like it's it's usually in my experience doesn't happen all at once Mm-hmm. It happens little by little by little. And so what that means is that, you know, after X number of months or years, different parties will just lose interest. Yes. It becomes less of a priority if that value proposition isn't so burning for them anymore. So then it becomes, you know, quite clear in a, in a sense what what one solution in that space is, is just regularly check in on your value propositions um, because, you know, it's you're not always going to be able to maintain a strong value par- value proposition for all participants. And that's fine in a sense. If so, it, let's say that it's your project and your value proposition is being served, but for one of your key stakeholders, it's just starting to go in a different direction for them. And they're like, uh, not sure about that. The earlier the warning you have, the more you're able to correct for that. And you might be able to just, and, you, and the more you're able to actually have those conversations explicitly, and you might be able to repair that with that stakeholder and then going, well, is there a different value proposition? Mm-hmm. Or could this serve a different need in your organization that might not be yours as such, but somebody else's? Can we get put in touch with somebody else in your organization? I mean, there's lots of different ways. But, you know, worst case scenario, they might be like, no, it's it's just never, it's never going to work. If we keep on this course, we're going to have to bow out at some point or another. <clears throat> and you you might be thinking, well, we have to keep on this course or this is serving me really well. So crap, okay, I need to find another partner or do I actually need that partner anymore? The more, the more lead time you've got, you can see how that would energize your own focus and interest. And so it's always kind of coming back to that, the premise and the rationale for collaboration and either maintaining strong value propositions or finding others who can keep that value proposition for your engagement with others nice and strong. But then there, there are other methods as well for maintaining momentum. You know, one of the, the simplest measures for collaborative success we've seen over the years is just routine. A great example is always looking at, you know, say sporting teams. 
who, you know, rely 100% on their collaborative capability. The second that falls apart, they lose a match, you know? If you look at in those sorts of situations, what maintains their capability is not if they've won or not or how well they've played a match. It's actually their practice. Mm -hmm. And if you don't turn up on Sunday for the practice session, Mm -hmm. you get one morning and then you're off the team. You know, it's that sort of a thing. And it's the same in professional collaborations. If that Mm -hmm. regular routine of getting together and working together isn't there and starts to fall away, then you can almost guarantee the momentum will start to drain away. The value propositions will be lost and it will just kind of crumble away underneath you. (laughs) But coming back together, especially post-COVID-19, is harder Mm. to do face-to-face and we're doing it uh, virtually now. Does that matter? Uh, Does technology matter? Can technology help here? Absolutely. Technology very much matters and it's always helped with collaboration since... (laughs) probably the beginning of time. And it, and it helps in very simple, straightforward ways If when you start thinking about it in that, you know, whenever you're working on any subject or topic of significant complexity, you just simply can't hold it all in your head. You need books, you need documents. That's technology already. Mm-hmm. And so you can see how that helps to coordinate. You know, you write a document, you will share it with somebody else. You can communicate complex ideas that can, that not only have more depth and persistence, they, you know, they, they weather time. You know, once you've written something down, you don't have to rely on your memory and forgetting things, those sorts of things. So just from that perspective, the simplest of technologies are really essential in substantive collaboration. Now, we tend to think of technology when we use that word these days as you know bits and bytes and software and hardware, and but absolutely things like teleconferencing or collaborative documents or collaborative project management software, all of those are tremendously helpful when it comes to collaboration, but they do require literacy. They are Typically, collaborative technologies, like in that software hardware space, Mm -hmm. they are social technologies. And social technologies are kind of a weird beast in their own right. Just for example, like, do you use Facebook Mm. or do you Mm. use Instagram? You know, it's just like something as simple and straightforward as that. It's like, well, how old are you? Do you have kids? You know, all these other Mm -hmm. sort of weird sort of dimensions start to come into play that that tends to influence how you think about a technology. And so how we think about technologies and how we associate ourselves with them in social situations becomes really important in this, in this sort of context. So, you know, do, for example, you know, the more you go up that leadership chain, it's quite likely the less exposure you have to social technologies. Somebody else is probably Mm -hmm. filling that gap for you and dictating for you, so to speak, metaphorically or otherwise. So, you know, getting involvement and and participation in technology is has huge opportunities, but it's always hugely complicated and challenging. (laughs) Now the 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 I think one thing that has been very interesting with um, with COVID and so many of us being in in various forms of lockdown is it's created an even playing field. And so suddenly all of us are engaging some of these most simplest of collaboration technologies in the same way that we would have probably not done or even tried to avoid previously. Right. <laughs> so I, you know, so I, th- I think that um, 
there's a there's a huge opportunity here for us because most mm. research teams of a significant scale will not be co-located. Mm. And so there's there's really big opportunities to capitalize on on that. I mean there's there's tons more I can say about this practically, but um just but, but does it does it matter if uh research teams don't see each other face to face for another year? Again, it probably depends a lot on that question of, you know. Is it how multidisciplinary mm. are they and, and how different are those cultural disciplines, let alone their actual cultures? How different are their actual cultures? Like where are they in the world, <laughs> geographically speaking? I think the more differences there are, the more important it is to make opportunities mm-hmm. to connect more interpersonally. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be literally face-to-face. Mm-hmm. But, you know, video conferencing, especially now that we're so much more accustomed to it, can do a lot of that, a lot of that work, I believe. Um, but still, there's nothing quite like face-to-face interaction to, to build trust and to really give collaboration a shot in the arm, that's for mm. sure. A concept I really enjoyed uh, reading in your book is the concept of the missing elephant. Yeah, this is this is a real challenge. So in this, so this is a a challenge when you're talking specifically about multi-organization or institution collaboration. But to a degree, even when you're collaborating across different, say, working units or, or say, different faculties um, in, in a university. So, so what the the missing elephant is is like when you if you imagine you've 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 taken a job with a new uh, organization or institution, that's the elephant that you're climbing up on, and and it can be quite a powerful thing to be to have you know the full weight of an institution behind you supporting your interests mm. and needs, and that's that's why I've kind of called it a, an elephant. Mm. Now the the challenge comes when you're kind of sidling up to another elephant. Mm. And in fact, you're trying to have, you know, to begin with even a conversation with somebody else sitting on the back of an elephant. Now, elephants, they kind of often will do their own thing and they're, they can be unpredictable, mm-hmm. let alone a bit cantankerous at points. But an elephant, and the elephant in this sort of context is, is the, the collection of all of the institutions, processes, technologies, its resources, its infrastructure, it's all of that stuff that you can take for granted when you're on its back. Mm. Now, if you're if you're you're proposing collaboration across a few of these elephants, you're using this metaphor, you can understand it's not exactly a very stable place to be. If you're all on the back of one elephant, great. That mm. that's can be nice and stable. But across the back of two, let alone three or four elephants, it's pretty tricky to stay aligned for any length of time. And so the the proposition that is often kind of overlooked in what makes for really big challenges in in these sort of collaborative situations is like, well, am I expecting those others to climb down off their elephant where they can get trampled and then climb up on top of my elephant? Can that, is that even possible? Is that what I'm proposing? Or are we talking about finding some new elephant that we're all going to somehow either climb down our elephants or jump off our elephants onto the back of this other elephant. And wait a minute, what is this other elephant? It it often kind of amounts to like a breeding program. Well, that elephant doesn't really exist. So we're going to have to kind of raise it up and create this new shared, you know, resource of process and technology and and that we're going to use together. And any, any type of breeding program has all of its own challenges, you know, so it's, it is a, it is a really, really hairy problem. 
when you're talking about multi-organizational collaboration. And I think, though, that probably the the most important thing is just recognizing that challenge on mm. the outside of large collaborations and kind of just, you know, having those conversations where you decompose it a little bit on or as early as possible and say, well, what communication platforms are we going to use? What project management software, let alone methodologies, are, you know, kind of operate in our home organizations. You know, it's just having those conversations early and starting to shape up in mind what those possible solutions could be, even before you start, I think does does a lot of the work on, on that front. Can you learn though? Can you get better at breeding elephants? Absolutely. You absolutely can. And that has been, I mean, that's, that's, you know, in many respects, you know, what I've kind of made a profession of is, you know, parachuting into new situations, helping create a plausible design for substantive collaboration, and then partnering to help facilitate that to come about. The more that you see this happen, obviously, the more the more of those challenges you can and pitfalls you can foresee and predict and you know that doesn't that doesn't solve every problem <laughs> just being able to say this is going to be the problem we're going to have but it puts it on people's radars and the, and then as you're edging closer to that challenge then people go all oh, right that's what you're talking about now i understand it <laughs> so definitely more experience brings more capability here and and actually one one more point that i uh, that I, I didn't get a chance to mention which is one of the real challenges with with collaborations is what we call the capability curve. So it links back to that that sporting team analogy. You can't really practice collaboration on your own. You have to collaborate to practice collaborate pr- collaborating, let alone to get better mm. at it. And so that has really significant implications for new teams because in professional situations, organizational situations, almost never is that recognized and you know your 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 project plan is being developed the minute you start and your first deliverables are imminent and there's no thoughts to the fact that as collaborators your capability is at its lowest point mm. and so what you're going to turn out is your first results are going to be possibly your worst work <laughs> mm. but the more you collaborate together, that curve goes up and you get better and better. That's obvious when you're thinking about things like sporting teams or what mm. have you. We just haven't really got that sophistication in organizations yet to realize that it's going to take time for a significantly collaborative project to get that capability up. And so that's that's another really big aspect when you're talking about multi-team, you know, multi-organizational collaboration is that just giving people the helping set ex, set expectations that it's going to be a little bit harder on the outset, and for good reason. Our capabilities at its lowest point, but the more we collaborate, the more we come to understand our challenges and opportunities, the more that our capability should go up. And if it's not consistently go, mm-hmm. up, going up, then that's a red flag to look at why what's what's holding you back here and unblock that so that it can that it can progress up. As you would expect it to, yeah, in in, in a footy team or something along right. those lines. Great, Mark. I've taken a lot of your time. I'll just recommend people who are interested in uh, setting up collaborations to have a look at Collaboration Design, your book. I found great concepts, great ideas, and good tips for people who want to set that up before they embark on a big collaborative project. Uh, Mark, I learned a lot. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate that, Ron. Great. Thanks, Mark. 
Thank you everyone for listening to Research for What. To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for What.